Next week's Thanksgiving. I'm hanging on there for the pies. Yeah. But we never make a bird because it's the sides. The sides are That's where it's at. Yeah. The sides are the important part. Always green bean casseroles yes. and mashed potatoes. Yeah. I haven't made this in a while, but my grandmother made corn pudding. That was one Ooh, of yeah. her specialties that I loved. But yeah, green, green bean casserole, I can't. Any time of year. I don't need a, yeah. an occasion for that. I have to admit, I dipped into the fried onions last night, so I'm going to have to buy another bag. <laughs> we ran out of chips, and I needed something salty and crunchy, so I have to go buy more. <laughs> you can't buy holiday stuff too far in advance, because it'll just get eaten. Absolutely. Okay. One, two, three. Spoilers. Spoilers. Oh. Did it sink? Let's try it again. One, okay. two, three. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> Definitely didn't sink. Spoiler. I've been refreshing myself on a few finales just to see if I remember them the way I think that I do. I was wondering about some of these annoying finale tropes that seem to pop up often versus some finale tropes that you feel they must be there or it's not a solid finale. The one that I hate the most is it was all a dream. That is such a cop out. I think it treats the audience like they're stupid and it just feels like the writers were like we're done we don't care anymore. But on the opposite side of that I think a time jump is often the only way that you can show what happens to these characters. It seems like the writers care and appreciate and respect the viewer that they would want to know what happens to these people because they know that you've built a relationship with them. You have an understanding and you love them or hate them. But the time jump is important. Yeah, the gold standard of that, of course, is Six Feet Under because not only did it literally wrap up everyone's storyline of getting misty-eyed, but it was part of the theme of the show. So it was a beautiful montage ending for me, the annoying things are pushing romantic partnerships together that were not seeded yeah. or well-seeded. Oh, surprise pregnancy. Oh, moving to a foreign country. Friends had all three of those. Not a surprise pregnancy, but the twin. They were expecting one baby. They got two babies. Mm-hmm. Must-haves are having little Easter eggs for the longtime fans. And I want to see crying. I want to see that people are having a hard time holding their shit together and they're feeling, (laughs) right? They they had to stop the take or whatever. I just want to see some callbacks. I want to see storylines tied up in a way that makes sense. But most of the circle, yeah, in the first season, yeah. Or that's more like the Easter egg thing. But pushing those people together that don't need to be. Don't watch something. Oh, it was suits. Was people who were attracted to each other, and there was always a little thing, but it was not like Sam and Diane contention. Mm-hmm. It was just casually mentioned. And then at the end, they drop everything and they put these two people together. Man. <laughs> yeah, I hate that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
this week we're going to talk about family, whether it's effed up family or found family or chosen family, whatever. So that is our unifying theme. Yes. What show did you think was too short? The show that I believe ended too soon was called Bloodline. It ran on Netflix for three seasons from 2015 to 2017. It's created by Todd A. Kessler, Glenn Kessler, and Daniel Zellman. It was canceled for low ratings in the final season, as well as unsustainable high production costs. It has such an awesome cast. It stars Kyle Chandler, Ben Mendelsohn, Linda Cardellini, Norbert Leo Butts, Sissy Spacek, Sam Shepard, and the supporting cast is that comes in later in different seasons, John Leguizamo, Katie Finneran, Andrea Riesborough, and Chloe Sevigny. The show is beautifully filmed in the picturesque Isla Morada, Florida, which is part of the Florida Keys. The humidity is almost like another character, and it really creates a sense of tension and overall discomfort for everyone on screen. Bloodline is an American drama and thriller about the secrets and crimes of the wealthy Rayburn family. At one point, one of the characters says, we're not bad people, but we did a bad thing. That really hangs in the air throughout the whole show. They actually are quite bad people, and they all do many bad things to each other. Robert and Sally Rayburn, played by Sam Shepard and Sissy Spacek, run an Oceanside Hotel called the Rayburn House. This is their family business and where they raise their children. Danny Rayburn, played by Ben Mendelsohn, is the black sheep of the family. He returns home for the 45th anniversary of Rayburn House. His brother, John, played by Kyle Chandler, is a detective with the local sheriff's office. His brother, Kevin, played by Norbert Leo Butts, owns a nearby marina. And their sister, Meg Linda Cardellini, is a lawyer. Danny, who has been estranged from his family, wants to stay on after the big anniversary party and help out at the hotel. But Robert is against this and leaves the decision up to his siblings. And they all feel that this is going to cause problems and ultimately just upset their mom when Danny eventually leaves again. So the siblings lie to Danny and say it was their dad and not them that has the problem with him staying. Danny confronts his father, Robert, about all this, which seemingly causes him to have a stroke. Robert eventually dies very early on in the show. In time, you find out that Danny's broken relationship with his family is rooted in the death of yet another sibling, a sister named Sarah, who died as a teenager. Danny took Sarah out on a boat, and she accidentally drowns. Blaming Danny for her death, Robert is angry and grieving, and he severely beats Danny, Sally, and the other siblings, cover up his abuse by lying to the police about Danny's injuries. Very dark. So after Robert dies, Danny does stay on at the hotel to help out after Robert's death. Things are going pretty well, but he starts to hang out with an old childhood friend, and they get involved in some petty crimes, which turn into bigger crimes, and he gets tangled up with a local drug and human trafficker. Eventually, he's smuggling cocaine through the hotel, using it as a front. John never trusted Danny, and because he's a detective, he was secretly investigating him. Danny starts acting very unhinged and makes a bunch of bad choices, gets into it with the human trafficker guy. That guy sends a hitman after him. He kills the hitman. After that happens, he's really off the rails. And one of the bad choices he makes is he takes John's teenage daughter out in a boat, putting her in a situation that mirrors Sarah's death. John finds out about this. He snaps in a really shocking, upsetting scene. John drowns Danny off this cove on the beach. He panics and he turns to the other siblings to help him cover up the murder. They decide to put Danny's body on a boat, set it on fire, which causes an explosion. Sally, their mother, doesn't believe that's how Danny died, so she hires a detective to figure out what really happened to Danny. And 
that, of course, complicates things for John and the others who know what really happened. Season one ends with the surprise appearance of Nolan, a teenage son that Danny had that no one knew about except Robert, his father. Season two and season three are really about Danny haunting John. All these people are trying to solve the mystery of Danny's death and all the siblings know what really happened. There's also more of the crime underworld that Danny was involved with that comes to light. There are more murders by other people that cover up the original murders. It gets very messy. There are a lot of plot threads in the first two seasons that die on the vine. They probably couldn't tie things up the way they intended, but you're left very confused. Major characters are introduced like Nolan, and then you don't really know where they're trying to go with that. Lead characters leave with no proper send-off. Meg just fucks off to California forever. They never say goodbye to her. It's like a phone call between her and John. A lot of people die suddenly. And I think maybe it was because they just wanted less people to deal with in the end. It just felt like a disservice to everyone involved in the show that it didn't get a proper, more fitting ending because the cast was so great. The performances were excellent. It was beautifully filmed. It won awards for the cinematography. Many of the cast members won awards as well for their performances. Just such a good ensemble. I was really disappointed that it didn't get to be fully realized. So did they get a chance to do a final story or did it get canceled right in the middle of it got okay? So they didn't it got canceled after season three and they didn't they just didn't wrap most of it. Okay. The KZK guys, those are damn it the damages guys too, the producers bloodline i started it and i don't remember why i stopped i think what happens is you think i'd like to see that show but by the time you get around to it it has been canceled and so at least i think maybe i won't bother then that's at least one way to winnow down ben mendelson i just love he's one of my favorites he he did the show i think you'd really like called he's so good i would watch him in anything the secret life of us it is a ensemble comedy drama set in Australia. Joel Edgerton's also mm-hmm. in it for a little while. It starts out like a regular bunch of attractive people living at the beach kind of show. But early on, it turns into something completely different and very good. And he's wonderful. Tell me one more time. What's it called? It's called The Secret Life of Us. Okay, I'll check it out. The Stranger, the Stephen King miniseries that was on HBO a couple of years ago, Jason Bateman produced, mm-hmm. and Ben Mendelsohn played the detective, and he was fantastic in that, too. He's just really good. The home team has first and ten in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter. Note the offense shifts to the right side for this play. And the ball is snapped. Over the years, you recommended great shows to me. I've recommended shows to you. And sometimes you give it your best effort. It just doesn't sit with you in the same way. You just don't really get it. Even if you try. I was wondering about the shows that you wanted to love, everybody else loved, and it just you just didn't, it didn't work for you. Not many that I can think of that you recommended, but one I know that you really loved was Miss Maisel, Marvelous Miss Maisel. I gave it a try. I love Alex Borstein, and I'd probably watch a show that was about her character. But I don't know. It just didn't grab me. And then, like, thinking back about other shows that grabbed the zeitgeist, but I didn't really get into Buffy was one. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Everyone is a Buffy head. The professors would talk about Buffy. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. I got the appeal 
but I never really got into the Dawson's Creek, One Tree Hill, My So-Called Life, Everwood, genre, right? Yeah. Don't go back and try to watch any of them. They do not hold up. (laughs) Actually, One Tree Hill is a terrible show. It's just awful. Um, (laughs) What about you? I think I know the one. (laughs) I really, I tried. I feel like, I don't know what the, how many episodes you would give a show what your idea is, but in, in my head, it's five or six. Shit's Creek. I know that it's beloved by so many and you loved it so much. I gave it six episodes and I left one time and I really wanted to get it. I thought this, everything's perfect. I love all these people. I love Catherine O'Hara. I love Eugene Levy. I thought so much Canadian television is so funny and we love already like Corner Gas and Letter Kenny. And I thought, I just thought it would be a slam dunk, and I just, I didn't go beyond that. I'm sure I missed out, but I just did never work for me. I don't know if I told you, though, I had to start it three times, because they're they're so terrible. They're just horrible people in the first few episodes. Yeah, I I didn't give it that much time, and I probably should have. And there are shows that I, that became... My favorites that I did give that much time or I gave a few tries. But the one that you did not recommend that everybody loved that I just hated was the White Lotus franchise. I just, they're also terrible people and they're not, they don't ever redeem themselves. I just didn't enjoy watching wealthy people be shitty to each other. Mad Men that everybody loved. Nothing ever happened. It was so slow. It was so boring. I know that that's a however many seasons of just character study. I just, I don't care. I never, (laughs) I watched the whole thing and I was just like, it, that was what I spent all that time watching. Yeah. I've heard the shows that either you found on your own or that people recommended to you that you're that you are surprised that you liked. There were a couple that I had to try a couple of times. Breaking Bad was one. I had to start it a few times. Doc Martin was one. That was before I got way into British television. I saw half of an episode and I was like, this isn't my jam. But then maybe one day just sat down. When somebody else was watching it and I was like, oh, maybe this is my jam. <laughs> but the big one to me is Line of Duty because I I don't watch any of those cop shows. I mean, The Shield being the notable exception. I think I had watched something that one of the actors was in. Oh, it was Keely Hawes. She was in The Bodyguard or Bodyguard. I don't know if it's the Netflix one. I don't know if it's called The Bodyguard because that's mm-hmm. the Whitney Houston movie. But anyway. And like I do, I went on IMDb and I said, oh, I'm going to watch her season of Line of Duty, which was either season two or season three. Oh, my God, it was so good. (laughs) And I went back to the beginning and then I was waiting for the next season. Now I'm waiting again for the next season. (laughs) It's exceptional. Wow. I remember you recommending that one. I don't know if I did or not, but it is just, oh, so tense. (laughs) <laughs> everyone is at the top of their game and it's what is so funny about it is a lot of it takes place in a conference room so because it's this the internal affairs people investigating and there there's a rule i've learned all this stuff about british policing now there's a rule that if you're being interrogated it has to be by somebody of your rank or higher so a lot of the static sometimes is the bad guys in there getting interviewed by someone who's not of their rank or higher than they're playing that status game. It sounds 
so dull. I'm just describing it. I'm just thinking about. You're just sitting in the in the office underneath fluorescent lights asking questions, <laughs> but it's so compelling. All right, and it's one of those ones like damages where bad guy is different each season. Mm-hmm. Tandy Newton did one season. Oh, what's his name? The actor who plays Robin Sharon's Scottish friend in Catastrophe, Neil something. Oh yeah, yeah. Every every person. Top to bottom. It's so good in it. All right. Add that to the list. <laughs> you and James would both like it. That's okay. one you guys really enjoy together, probably. Yeah. What about you? Well, I thought about this a lot. And I think the shows that have surprised me recently are the shows that the genre I never gravitate towards. But like the horror and genuinely scary shows. The first one is Mindhunter, which I really, I just thought was just so good. The other one, I Lovecraft Country, and that is straight up a horror. It's not even straight up anything. It's very weird and, and all over the place. And it's very gory. It's very bloody. But there's, it's so much more than that. The, the common thread with those is the storytelling is really interesting. And the casts are so good. And those shows that are outside of a genre I'm normally comfortable with and I would never watch by myself and certainly not when it gets dark. I think if you have those bones to a show, then those were surprising. And I really, I do like them both equally. Now, this one I know is one of your beloveds, but you think it (laughs) went a little too long. I do. My too long show is Brothers and Sisters. This was originally a network show that ran for five seasons on ABC from 2006 to 2011. I watched it later when it was streaming on Hulu. I can't remember when I would have started that, but I've gone back to it a few times. It's created by John Robin Bates, produced by Greg Berlanti and the great Ken Olin, who everything that he touches turns to something amazing. Starring Sally Field, Tom Skerritt, Callista Flockhart, Rachel Griffiths, Matthew Reese, Balthazar Getty, David Annable, Ron Rifkin, and Patricia Wedig. Brothers and Sisters follows the wealthy Walker family of Pasadena, California, who run Ojai Foods, a big produce company. They are divided often by their conservative versus liberal politics and fundamental beliefs. Sally Field and Tom Skerritt, who you may remember, played Shelby's parents in Steel Magnolias. They reunited here and played Nora and William Walker. They have five children, Sarah, played by Rachel Griffiths, and Tommy, played by Balthazar Getty, who both work as executives at Ojai Foods. Daughter Kitty, played by Callista Flockhart, is a conservative radio host turned TV pundit. Kevin, played by Matthew Reese, is a lawyer. And youngest sibling, Justin, played by David Annable, is a recently returned vet from Afghanistan who is in and out of recovery for drugs and alcohol. Ron Rifkin plays... Saul, Nora's brother, who is the CFO of Ojai Foods. The family is gathered in Pasadena for Kitty's birthday when William has a heart attack and falls in the pool and drowns. What follows is the secrets that are uncovered after his death, including how he embezzled money from the company pension fund and a decades-long affair. The family struggles to make sense of the messes he left and the power struggles around how to manage the company going forward. There's also a long-standing clash between Kitty and Nora, which you find out stems from when Kitty... Kitty encouraged and supported Justin when he enlisted in the military just after 9-11, and that brings to light their different viewpoints about politics and the world. I love the show. It is very soapy. In fact, 
two telenovela spinoffs were created and based on the show, one in Mexico and one in Colombia. But it addressed a lot of things that families experience. And it tackled a lot of big stuff in successful and thoughtful ways. They help people butt heads over differing political views, divorce, addiction, parenting challenges, illness, infertility, and postpartum depression, and miscarriage, and child loss, and what family means if you weren't necessarily raised with these people. There were some really great actors that came through in later seasons. Rob Lowe plays a senator that Kitty ends up running a campaign for and eventually marrying. Bo Bridges, Peter Coyote, Richard Chamberlain, Treat Williams, and Stephen Weber all play love interests of various characters. I think the show went on too long because after three seasons that felt mostly very even and in line with the story, season four and season five have a lot of gratuitous anguish that the characters go through. And there were a bunch of weird side stories that kind of felt off the mark. In season four, they gave Kitty a terminal cancer diagnosis, which is then followed by a horrific car crash that involves almost everyone in the family. Two of the main characters suffer major injuries. Season five starts with Kitty not being able to take her husband off life support, despite there not being any hope for any quality of life for him. Another main character has complete memory loss from her injuries in the crash. Sarah finds out that William was not her biological father, and that's a very quickly solved mystery. And then Kitty's pregnant, but will she continue or will she not continue her cancer treatments? There were so many weird loose ends. There were so many things that were rushed. They knew they were getting canceled. And I think they just slammed together that final season. And it just, I feel like they could have just like not done that. Not created so much trauma for everyone at the end. I still really love this show. I still go back to it. Yesterday, I, I revisited a couple of the episodes of the first season just so I could get my head around it again because it had been a while. I still think it's great. I know my mom loved this show, and I know other people that really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I remember really enjoying it. I don't think I watched the whole series, but I remember, yeah, in the beginning, really enjoying it. I was talking to Maria today about the transfer credits, so she doesn't have to take this class again. And it's so stupid, the system that is in place for a lot of this transfer evaluation. If I were in charge, I would break the whole system down and I won't get into that. But the reason I'm saying it is the way that we do series when you know it's gonna be the last season is so stupid. I think if streaming can do anything, it could say, let's get creative. Ken Olin or whoever the showrunner was at the time, this is gonna be the last season. What are your, what's your vision for these characters? Let's talk about, do you need six episodes? Do you need 10 episodes? Some shows that in the past have done, the show got canceled, but then they had maybe a two-hour movie or a one-hour or something just to wrap things up. Because the formula doesn't work. We got this many hours of television to fill. We got this many ads to sell, whatever it mm -hmm. is. It just doesn't work. One of the ones that did a really great job in the last few years was a New Girl, they weren't going to get those last nine episodes, but mm -hmm. Jake Johnson and Zoe Deschanel and a couple others went to the head of Fox and said, we've had these fans go on this journey with us. We don't want a slipshod finale. Give us these episodes and we'll wrap it up. I thought that was perfect. Just that many episodes. They didn't need a whole season. They had this time jump they gave everybody 
some goofy green time. They had a funeral for Ferguson. They know they did some funny things as well as giving everybody time. I think also things that are challenging, of course, like when they're actors who need to leave because they're having a baby and they're not writing that into the script. That happened at least once with Rachel Griffiths on Brothers and Sisters. So they sent her away for a while. She went to France. Her character went to France. Sometimes storylines get strange and you have to work around real life events, of course. And we, we saw that happen in the last couple of years with the pandemic. Things They wrote big changes into things if they didn't work that into the actual plot. But like we talked about with Shonda Rhimes and characters leaving, don't they have a vision for the future for that character where they can at least work? We know for sure that, that we're not going to kill him off. We are going to make sure that he opens a clinic or that he moves here and does this or he gets a job here. I don't know. I feel like there should be some greater planning. Who knows what's going to happen now? We had the great streaming boom of the 2010s, and now who knows where we're going. But mm -hmm. if we had that flexibility, we see this show is six half-hour episodes a season. This show is 12 one-hour episodes. This show, maybe like Ted Lasso's last season was... Some of them were 30 minutes, some of them were 45, some of them were an hour and 10. So let's let yeah. people be creative about the way that they shape, especially the ending. Maybe if they get to the end and then they say, you know what, we're not going to renew this for another season. To be able to say, we'll give you three hours and do whatever you want with it. Anyway. Yeah. Because of it being Thanksgiving-y, I thought we would do some of your favorite side dishes, sidekick over the years. Anybody come to mind? My, the first one that right off the top of my head is Niles on Frasier. I just felt like he was such a perfect foil for Frasier. And I, I feel like while Martin was the, kind of the heart of the show, Niles just was the good balance between the snarky and the over-the-top pretension. And I love that character. And then even though it's an ensemble show, would have been Janet on The Good Place. She was so great. And uh, it makes me want to go back and, and revisit that show. But those were maybe my top two favorites. Those are good ones. Pam in True Blood. I just loved how awful she was. Martin Moon's imaginary friend, Sean Murphy, played by Chris O'Dowd. In Moon Boy, the relationship between those two is hilarious. But also, Martin's best friend, Horik, has his imaginary friend, who's a pro wrestler, named Crunchy Haystacks, played by Johnny Vegas, Hildy in Bosom Buddies, Peter Scolari, oh, wow. Henry, and of course, Wanda and Hank. In Corner Gas. One of my favorite things is watching Wanda, Nancy Robertson, run after Hank. And also just watching her run from and to things. After Michael Jackson died, they had an Eternal Moonwalk site. You went to eternalmoonwalk.com. And it was people just moonwalking on an Eternal Scroll. I would have that, but for Wanda running. What about the worst? Oh, the worst. The one that popped into mind was... Larry on Three's Company, 
I don't know if my parents even knew how much I was watching Three's Company when I was a kid. Even at that young age, I wasn't, he wasn't threatening. He was a goober. He was, he was Larry and he was so not smooth. Saul in Homeland, he's a bad one. I wouldn't have thought of him as that, but yeah. <laughs> I have a, a a little bit of a list myself, and it's it's all the children that were added later that were supposed to be cute and precocious, but really so annoying, like April on Gilmore G- Girls and Billy on Who's the Boss, Andrew on Family Ties. It's actually called Cousin Oliver Syndrome. And that is a reference to the Brady Bunch, and that's an attempt to liven up an aging cast with a character for the younger demographics. Every single time, it's such a bust, and they sometimes they just tank a show for you. It made me sad recently when I went back to watch A Different World, and some of the early episodes, they're intercut with Cosby Household. In those episodes, Rudy was still that role, and I thought... Right. How did Rudy feel, Keisha and I, Pulliam feel, when Raven came along and was the cute one? How does that one-step-older child actor feel when the younger, cuter model comes in? And they didn't give, if I remember correctly, they didn't give Rudy much of a storyline as she got older. They gave her a couple things, like a boy to have a crush on or something, but it was really about the cute hijinks of the new kid. The one that I felt ended just right. I decided to go with Insecure because it does fit with that found family theme. It ran for five seasons on HBO, 2016 to 2021. It was created by Issa Rae based on her web series, Awkward Black Girl. And Larry Wilmore, producer, writer, creator extraordinaire, came in and helped her develop it into a show format the HBO show, and so he has co-creator credit. Producers are Issa Rae, Prentice Penny, who also produced a fair amount of Brooklyn Nine-Nine episodes, Michael Rottenberg, Melina Matsukas, Dave Becky, who represents a lot of comedians, and Jonathan Barry. For Issa Rae Productions, Hooray Media, Penny for Your Thoughts Entertainment, Three Arts Entertainment, and HBO Entertainment. Stars Issa Rae as Issa D, Yvonne Orji as Molly Carter, Jay Ellis as Lawrence Walker, Natasha Rothwell as Kelly Prenny, Amanda Seals as Tiffany Dubois. The reason I picked those characters, of all the characters, is that the four women, Molly, Issa, Kelly, Tiffany, are best friends from college and are family. They're the four core there for each other all the time, whenever, whatever time of day, criticize each other's choices, no doubt, in a loving, caring way, and call each other on their bullshit. It's a beautiful friendship and relationship quadruple that they've got going on. Now, there are a couple of shows that I, and I've said this to you, that have come on recently that I felt too old to be watching. It is a very sexy show. And it's not really about the sex part because all of those premium cable channels, they like, they just want to show attractive people having sex. That's fine. It's more about the age of the actors and characters and that 
the hookup culture and apps that are just a foreign mystery to me. So Insecure was one. The other one was Maymart Feel Good. I don't know if you got to watch that. Two seasons on Netflix. No. Another good one. Anyway, I feel old. <laughs> but it starts with Lisa and Lawrence are together. And they've been together for a while. But Lawrence is going through a rough time. He's trying to design an app. He's been unemployed for a while. He's just taking care of everything. She's in a job she doesn't love, but it it challenges her. It's in the vein of what she wants to be doing. And she runs into an old flame. They start to hang out. Things get a little dangerous. And she ends up cheating on Lawrence. But this is just a symptom of the greater problem, which is that they've been stuck in a rut. When we're introduced to Molly in season one, she's very driven, successful attorney on the partner track, but she has a lot of anxiety and expectations around relationships. And that drives some of the, it drives a lot of the bonding between her and Issa, but it also drives a lot of the discord between them. You know, it's easy to see sometimes when someone you love is in a situation and you are full of advice, but you can't take that advice for yourself. So that's kind of the dynamic. Then later on, it gets a little more fraught as they start to get on each other's nerves more about these relationship issues that go back and forth but that in the first season that setup is they're both in this transitional period in their lives the next few seasons it goes through changing relationships changing careers all of those things that are very normal for this time of life people are getting married people are having babies people are breaking up people are trying things they never tried before Issa and Lawrence come in and out of each other's lives a few times. I won't give too many specifics, but I think what I really liked about the show and the way that it tied up was that on again, off again, on again, off again, so often feels like they're doing something to hook you in. We're going to break them up because that's going to cause this false sense of drama. And then we'll put them back together and get everybody's hopes up, and then we'll break them up again, or whatever. But the way that it was done in this series, I feel, was real, because it was definitely, the focus was on person A and person B saying, what do I need to make myself happy? What am I looking for? Not just in a partner, but in my life, in my career, in my friendships, in the kind of person I want to be in the world. It wasn't just a whim. The way that it resolved was genuine. And I really liked mm-hmm. that. There were many beautiful transitions. The core friendship of particularly Molly and Issa, but the, these four women who are in each other's lives throughout all of these transitions is the family aspect of it, the story aspect of it. Like I said, there wasn't anything that felt lazy about it. There wasn't anything that felt slapdash. It felt like everything was earned by the time everything got wrapped up. I need to go back to that one. I started it and then it was part of the great HBO cancellation of 2016 or whenever that happened. So I have a whole list of HBO shows to get caught up on. It definitely made me feel old. 
but like sex education made me the sex education made me feel old like i could be these kids parents i wanted all of john anderson's outfits yeah i was and insecure made me feel old like i wasn't old enough to be their mom but i was also not young enough to be their friend so i just felt like a skeevy bystander kind of thing We'll all be home full of lots of food and ready for entertainment. What are the uh, holiday specials or things that you just watch on a regular basis over the holidays? They used to be friends. I used to watch all of the ho- of the Thanksgiving episodes, but New Girl has taken the place. I love all of the New Girl Thanksgiving episodes, but my favorite one is when Nick, Nick is not feeling masculine. So they decide to go out into the woods. Yep. Winston and Cece and Jess go hiking to a co-op down the road and get a bunch of fruits and vegetables and bring them back to try to fatten up the feast. And they try to convince everybody that these are things they found in the wild, like a watermelon or yeah. a head of cabbage. Yeah. And they all have <laughs> the produce stickers on them. Yes. And Jess eats the dead fish and hallu- ends up hallucinating and falling into a bear trap and she's like have a look at our carpet samples this down the line your call is very important to us <laughs> the early one i remember was when cheers did the thanksgiving episode everybody goes to carla's house only for the gag of you think you're finally gonna see vera and she comes in at the end and with a pie on her face because it's in the middle of a food fight. The whole thing was like, oh, Vera's coming. We're going to finally see Vera. And I was too young to know, understand that was a running gag. I thought we were actually going to see Vera. I think there was a parenthood one that I really liked, but maybe it wasn't Thanksgiving. Maybe it was more just like the general vibe of when all the Bravermans would get together. Felt like Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Th- those are some. Nice. I would have forgotten about a lot of those. What about you? I don't really watch holiday specials over Thanksgiving, but we do have a tradition in our house that every Thanksgiving we have a Rocky Marathon. (laughs) And it started with back in 2015 or 2016, the first Creed, which is a continuation of the story of Apollo Creed that came out in theaters and it came out over Thanksgiving weekend. So we went to see that. And then a couple of years later, when Creed 2 came out, it also came out over Thanksgiving weekend. So we started to just have a marathon so we could bring ourselves current and remember what had happened through all the movies. It's just become a thing that we do in our house and we love it so much. I'm looking forward to that next week. That's fun. Especially this year, you guys dressed up in honor. We did. We dressed up as the Balboa family and we dressed up our dog as Apollo Creed in a tiny top hat and a cape for the big fight with the, the American flag. Yeah. I'm most proud of my dog costumes. The one that I would rewrite if I could, if I had my first choice, it would be to give them three episodes so they could write it themselves. But since it's 
clear that's not going to happen. The show is everything's going to be okay. It ran just two seasons on Freeform, also on Hulu from 2020 to 2021. So I'm assuming it may have been a COVID casualty. It's created by Josh Thomas, Australian comedian, actor, writer, and produced by Josh Thomas, Stephanie Swedlove, Kevin White, Richard Allen Turner, David Martin, and John Thoday for Avalon Television and John and Josh International. John Thoday is a mega comic producer in England. He produces all the big guns there. Starring Josh Thomas as Nicholas, Kayla Cromer as Matilda, Adam Faison as Alec, and Maeve Press as Genevieve. So it starts with Nicholas is visiting his American dad from Australia. He is a young adult. He's got two half-sisters, Matilda and Genevieve. Matilda is old, the older sister. She is on the autism spectrum. She wants to start to date. She wants to be with the high school football player. She wants to get drunk. All these th experiences she wants to have. So she's prepared for the real world. Genevieve is a precocious, I think she's 13, played by Maeve Press. Maeve Press, she started doing stand-up in New York when she was 12 or something like that. Nicholas comes to visit his dad. And before he's getting ready to get on the plane to go home to Australia, his dad says, I need to talk to you. I've got cancer. It's terminal. I need you to be the guardian of your sisters. Very intense. Nicholas has to decide, is he going to become guardian? Of course, he decides he will. And in very short order, dad is gone. He's raising his two sisters who are essentially strangers. He doesn't have a close relationship with them. He doesn't know anything about raising girls. He doesn't know anything about getting them to school on time, making them lunch, any of that stuff. Nicholas hangs out around the house all day and has a high anxiety personality. He's also an etymologist. So each episode is named after some kind of exotic insect. And usually at the end, you'll see an in one of the insects. They're all very in interesting. I could gush on and on about it, but some beautiful things happen. As they get closer and become more of a family, of course, some very big challenges happen. One of them is that Matilda is getting ready to go to college and she's a piano prodigy. So she wants to go to Juilliard. Her resource teacher at the school calls Nicholas for a parent-teacher conference and says, have you talked to Matilda about her wanting to go to college do you think she has the skills basically to be away from you guys in a big city so they take her to new york for the weekend to try and help her do the subway by herself it is fucking intense and heartbreaking and they're pulling for her and she isn't able to do that and so for her to move across the country and be independent in that way is not in the cards right now. She has a good friend, Andrea. Andrea has a service dog, a golden retriever, Duke, another excellent co-star. When they're trying to figure out what their relationship is, Nicholas is dating Alex, who he meets out at a bar one night, and very quickly Alex becomes 
kind of his live-in boyfriend. He's there all the time. He gets along with the girls and he's another fun layer to this weird family dynamic. What happens towards the end of season two is that Nicholas discovers that he may also be on the autism spectrum. Instead of talking to Alex about it, he decides he's going to break up with him because he doesn't know what it means and he doesn't want to ask him to deal with it. Drea and Matilda decide that they're going to get married. She and Drea date a little bit in the beginning, but then Matilda says, I think really I'm into guys, but I love you. And Drea has romantic feeling towards women, but she's asexual. They decide, you know what? We're a good fit. And we're going to get married because I can't imagine feeling closer to anybody else than I feel to you. When it ends, Matilda and Drea have just married. Alex and Nicholas have just broken up. Genevieve kind of feels at a loose end because her sister and her best friend is married and now going to be living somewhere else. And she's not sure what's next for her. So... The way that I would write the ending, because they didn't get an ending, is A, I would have a lot more of Drea's parents, who were played by Richard Kind and Maria Bamford. Oh. I don't need to tell you how wonderful they are. Maria Bamford and Josh Thomas are these two hyper-anxious parents on the phone with each other all the time. And Richard Kind is just laid back. Just let it happen. I would watch a show just about them. But I think in my fantasy finale, I would have them move into the mansion with everybody because their house is getting tented for termites or something. I don't know. I just want them all in the house together. Nicholas would undo the breakup with Alex because it was devastating. I don't often cry during sitcom breakups, but this was really sad. It came out of Nicholas believing that there wasn't going to be a way to work through the blocks. I think Alex was sweet and loving and flexible. There were things that maybe he asked Nicholas to do that he didn't want to do, but it wasn't like he was pressuring him. So I think it was just reaction to this idea of I'm in this whole new headspace and I don't know how to handle it. So I would put them back together. And Genevieve has been writing poetry and she's got her first little romance going and stuff like that. And I think that I would have her maybe start to try and find her thing and also move away from her bitchy friends to see her move away from them and find her people and find her interests and decide what she's going to pursue and all of that stuff. Give her a win because she's in kind of a sad place when the season ends. Basically, I only need two or three episodes to do what I want to do. One doesn't have to be a happy ending, but it it would be a nicer ending. Would be an ending. And then everybody would have their own story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Matilda, you were like, what the heck? When they say they're getting married, they're not even 20. What the heck are they doing? But by the time Mm -hmm. they did get married, it was it was nice. They had explained why they were doing it. They were very confident in their decision and it was fine and that was settled. So I felt like that 
their story was good. Genevieve, she's just in that time of life that's just going to be a pain in the ass no matter what. It would probably make it a little easier for her to have more people around to support her. So that's another reason to bring Alex back. Do you have a recommendation? Oh, I do. This episode is talking about families, either traditional or non. And one show that I feel like fits that is a new show called Platonic that we're watching on Apple TV. So far, there's just been one season with 10 short episodes. It premiered in May of 2023. It's created by Francesca Del Banco and Nicholas Stoller, starring Rose Byrne, Seth Rogen, Luke McFarlane, Trey Hale, and Carla Gallo. Rose Byrne plays Sylvia, a former attorney and stay-at-home mom who is married to Charlie, who is also an attorney. Seth Rogen plays Will, a recently divorced bar owner and beer maker. Um, Sylvia and Will were best friends when they were younger, but had a falling out and then reconnect years later over social media. Their first meetup is a disaster. They're awkward and defensive with each other, and they both lie about their lives to impress the other when they're actually both really dissatisfied and frustrated. But they try again, and it goes better. And they start to be friends again the way they used to be, to the dismay of Sylvia's husband, who thinks Will is immature, and he's bringing Sylvia down to his level. The series follows their misadventures together. It's a show about how hard it is to make and maintain friendships as an adult, how parenting and being coupled up can complicate your relationships outside of your family, and how when you're in different places in your life than your friends are, how that can make or break friendships, and just the overall idea of what family is. I love the show. It's very funny and smart. And the chemistry between Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen is very believable and easy. I enjoyed this a lot, and they really wrap things up in a very clean way at the end of season one. And they haven't said whether it's coming back or not. But I would watch those two ding-dongs for six more seasons if they end up bringing that show back. It's delightful. Okay. I, I haven't tried it yet. And I, I wanted to see Physical, which was Rose Byrne's one that she just finished. Don't do, don't do it. Okay. I mean, if you want to, I don't recommend it. I love her. I dove in like with all my full feet, all feet, four feet. <laughs> but I ended up only getting maybe... I don't know, six episodes in, and then I was like, okay, I'm out. And then we switched to this, and it's just lighter. I was going to talk about Murder at the End of the World today, because we just started watching it. But I'm just ready for some light frivolity. Yeah. If you're ready to pop the cap on the holiday viewing, the one uh-huh. that I had really enjoyed recently was Home for Christmas. It's a Norwegian tv show on netflix and they did two seasons six episodes each that's a perfect little binge for thanksgiving weekend or any time it stars ida elise broach as johan who is a nurse in a hospital and she's recently gone through a breakup it's the standard set up of a lot of these holiday movies where her family is making fun of her for being single again and she under pressure says this year I'm bringing somebody to dinner and so they're all speculating who's she gonna bring she's got a few potential people in her sphere she's very endearing I hate shows that are set in the snow I have, I'm having trouble right now with the one we're watching because it's set in Iceland. 
but it's so warm that I forget it's set in the snow. It's even when she's out drinking, which is my serious phobia is when people are drinking in the snow. Even when she's out drinking in the snow, it's still so fun and lighthearted and lovely that it doesn't bother me. It's just a sweet, funny Nordic Christmas holiday feast. That sounds perfect. I, I just put it on my list. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. I would watch it again. I would like to draw everyone's attention today to their local food banks, which do great work throughout the year, but especially around the holidays, they need extra help. I wanted to provide some statistics for that. In 2022 alone, 49 million people turned to food assistance and 13 million of those people were children. And this is remarkable and terrible, but 100% of U.S. counties experience food insecurity. Every single county in this country. With rising food costs and government resources eroding after losing pandemic funding, there are greater numbers of people experiencing hunger and food insecurity. The food bank is not necessarily just a place where people show up for one meal. They are providing food pantries where people can pick up groceries, uh, meal delivery to seniors and people in rural areas, and they provide school lunches as well as summer meal programs for kids. Often, a $1 donation covers two meals for an individual, and during the holiday season, there are usually matching donations so your money can go even further. In my area, we support the Food Bank of Contra Costa and Solano Counties, and you can find that at foodbankcs.org, as well as the San Francisco Marine Food Bank, and that's sfmfoodbank.org. If you don't know of a local food bank to support, you can visit feedingamerica.org and click on Find a Food Bank, where you can enter your zip code, and it will provide links to a network of organizations fighting hunger in your community. That's great. Ours is Second Harvest of Western Carolina. Excellent. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Share your endings with us at retconnection.com or on Instagram at retconnection.